Thank you so very much for the opportunity to be here today. <clears throat> I may need just a little water, I think, a little frog here. I don't want to croak. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, this is the time that you have appointed. I can see it. I've seen it all day. And this is what you've placed in my heart. Today, I ask you to help me to speak as I ought and my conversation be seasoned with salt. In Jesus' name, amen. It's quite obvious that everyone here is dealing with stuff. We just put it that way. And if you're not dealing with stuff, I'll put it this way, either you have, you are, or you will be. It's life. It's what's going to happen. And our tendency is, during these times, we tend to focus, as the saying goes, you can't see the forest for the trees. How many have ever heard that statement? All right, to make it very clear, to make sure everybody understands it, that we get so focused upon a tree that we need to stand back and to see that there's a forest. And sometimes we need to look outside the box. What we tend to do is to look inside the box. But sometimes we need to stand back and take a broader perspective and look outside the box. Thank you very much. And to look outside the box. And so it is that we need to do that today. Um, and by looking outside the box, my prayer and my heart's desire is that God will help us to see things as he did the children of Issachar. As you understand in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it said that God gave wisdom, understanding of the times and what to do at that particular time. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to ask the Lord to give to us understanding of the times as well as what to do. There's a poem that I thought was very appropriate for this occasion and it kind of puts things into perspective. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I do not choose the collars, he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. I come here today with the idea to give some hope, to give you hope. And there's a power in hope. There was a study done in 1957. I just recently read this. A study done in 1957. They didn't experiment with rats. They put them in a container with water. And the, the rats could not get out. In an average 15 minutes, all the rats gave up, sank to the bottom, and drowned and died. So they did the experiment a second time. This time they put the rats back into the water. And about the time they were about to give up and to sink, they would reach in and they'd grab the rats, they'd pull them out of the water, dry them off, and then they put them back into the water. 
Do you have any idea how long those rats survive? They survived 60 hours. What was the difference? Hope. And folks, we have God, and therefore we have hope. And we should have hope. And I would have us to think about this in the midst of all the things that happens. I read this comment that said this, suffering is not always a consequence of direct personal sin, but it is always the result of living in a fallen world. None of us are exempt from the effects of that fallenness. Suffering may be undeserved, but it is never purposeless. The suffering will come. But yet, what should be our attitude when it does come to us? Our attitude, the pastor here referred to, he says to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, boy, doesn't that sound strange. I had a friend, have a friend, and when he was in school, his wife was in the hospital, somebody had stolen his money, and something else had happened. His baby had been dropped on the floor in the hospital, and he always had this saying when I talked to him, I said, well, Danny, how you doing? He said, if it's any better, I couldn't stand it. I looked at him like, you've got to be kidding. But some people look at this, how do I count it all joy in the midst of all of this crisis? If somebody would, in that situation, if you were trying to be serious, was saying, oh, yeah, I'm thrilled. My baby just fell on the floor and cracked its head wide open. Woo-hoo! You know, people would look at him and say, you are a nut. You know, so how do we explain this joy in the midst of the trials and the heartaches? I explain it this way. There's a difference between joy and happiness. God gave us feelings. And God doesn't expect us to be happy when we're sad. God knows when we grieve, he gave us all these different kinds of emotions. So we have that. But there's this word joy. We need to understand what joy is. Joy is a settled state. Joy is like the thermostat. It is fixed. It doesn't change. But yet the thermometer goes up and down with the circumstances around it. My feelings and my emotions will rise. My feelings and emotions will fall. But the thermostat is fixed. And you have found out, no doubt in your lifetime already, many, that the joy of the Lord sustains you through all of that. It is settled. I don't care whatever happens. Our dear brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, as they're going through the crisis they're going through, and you go through the crisis you're going through, there is something that holds you, and that is the joy of the Lord. It never Never fluctuates. So our attitude ought to be the joy of the Lord is our strength. It is his joy. So we are like, like that attitude, joy in the midst of trials. Now he goes ahead and qualifies some things. And I want to share with you some of the benefits of adversity. This actually was put on my heart a few weeks ago, maybe over a month. And I just, I, just as you sit there, you know, it just came. And I just put it all down. And I said, this, I, I got to have this. We need to stand back and to look at these things from a broader perspective. So one of the things I saw is the, one of the benefits of adversity is the word attention. In Jeremiah 22, 21, God said to the people of Israel, he said, I spoke to you in your prosperity, and you said you would not hear. Paraphrase, he said, you will now. And you know what? God sometimes has to speak to us, and we as a people, we as a nation, we as a church, we have been basically living in prosperity, and God says, okay, I will get your attention. Now will you listen to me? Now, for some of you, it's like this. 
Yeah, how many have ever taken a long drive, been on the road and driving? You go at night, you know, and you get going. Next thing you get the coasting along and you kind of go like this. Any of you ever do that? Anybody other than me being a crazy driver? Yeah, there, there's a couple of people that are that way. Anyway, and you know what? They have these rumble strips along the side of the road. And here I'm going like this, you know, I'm about to nod, and all of a sudden, <laughs> you know. And you know what? They, they get your attention. But that's not a bad thing. Because they haven't not gotten my attention, who knows where I would have gone. And so God allows these things to happen sometimes to get our attention. So one of the benefits of adversity is it gets our attention. It makes us say, oh, wait, look, I need to wake up. I need to pay attention. And we as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this bountiful, blessed country have for the most part up until COVID have been coasting right along. In fact, I was back here a few weeks, a month or so ago, whenever it was, you guys had a special meeting, you had come back, and you had a special time of sharing about the benefits of what had happened, and your pastor said, you know, I had been kind of coasting along, but this woke me up, and he's become more passionate from my observation than even before. And we need to be passionate about the things of God. We cannot afford to coast, but it does get our attention. And another thing does, it causes us to get an assessment in the book of Exodus, I'm not going to read all the scriptures because if I did, we'd take a lot of time here this morning, but I'm sure you can find it and you're familiar with what I'm going to share. In the book of Exodus in chapter 15 and verse 22 through verse 25, the children of Israel have now come out of the land of Egypt. They crossed over the Red Sea. And as they crossed over the Red Sea in chapter 15, they start singing, horse and rider crossed into the sea. Woohoo! And y'all, I mean, they're victorious. We can do anything. I'm saved. I'm heaven bound. I can do anything. Boy, we go across that Red Sea, the water parks like that. I can walk on like that. Woo, look at that. There's a big old fish over there. I wish I could take that one home and eat. You know, I mean, they, they got, they said, nothing can stand against us. And then they're following God's man, Moses. They're going as God directs under the cloud. They're going exactly where they're supposed to go. And probably a couple million people now, they travel for three days and they don't have any water. Now, they come to a place where there is water. And the water is bitter water. And what do they do? Wouldn't that we have stayed back there in Egypt? At least we had food. If we'd have gone back, they started complaining. They started griping. This is the same people said, we can do anything. And now here they are grumbling, griping, and complaining. But wait a minute. They're following God's lead and God's man, and he led them to a place where the water was bitter, and they're fussing and fuming. And then Moses, he prayed about it, and he took a tree, he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And God said to him, I did this to test you. Not that God didn't know where they were, but God was saying, you needed to know you have not arrived. And the conduct you just demonstrated real, 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 uh, uh, makes you realize you have not arrived. You've got a lot of work yet to do. And they go, oh, you're right. And one of the things in this does, the benefit of adversity, it causes us to stop, to take a look at ourselves, and to realize I have a ways to go. I like that song, He's Still a Working on Me. You know, you, you're familiar with the song, you know? He's got a lot of patience. He's got a lot of work to do on me. So there is, he gets our attention. Two, one of the other benefits is an assessment. 
And we just sang the song about how firm a foundation. And this is the third thing. He affirms our foundation and the need for a foundation. In the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 24 through 27, that's a very familiar uh, portion you talked about vacation Bible school. Did you ever do the song, the wise man built his house upon the rock? How many ever did that song? How many have no idea what that song is? It's a good song. The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came, the winds came, and the house, it stood firm. But the foolish man built his house upon the sand, and the wind came, and all that stuff came, and it went, what did it do? I, well, you guys were slow slappers, I'll tell you. Wake up. Okay. All right. That's the only way I can get an applause here. Hey. <laughs> anyway, uh, but it fell. It was not a question about whether winds or the water or any of that stuff was going to come. It was going to come. The question, what happened, the storm revealed the foundation. Was it firm or was it faulty? And the trials of life that come to you and come to me reveal to us, is our foundation in Jesus Christ firm or is it faulty? Can we rely upon him? And it's tested. And you find out, hey, I can trust him. My wife and I, we had left Illinois. We traveled about 1,200 miles. We moved to Bangor like the Beverly Hillbillies. Pack up your bags and move away from here. So we did. And so we moved into uh, Bangor. We're staying there with our mother-in-law. My mother-in-law, we're staying there. And I had some resources. But it was back in the time, 1980, 81, and there was a Jimmy Carter years, and there was a high inflation. There was no jobs. I was always one step behind a job. I'd show up and I'd say, hey, I came to apply for a job. They said, boy, we wished you to come here 15 minutes ago. We just hired somebody. And it was that way all the time. I had my wife and I had three little kids. Jonathan was just a little diaper boy. Still in diapers. He wet him too, I'll tell you. Anyway, so, but, but we, we were there and my resources began to dwindle. And then it dwindled to the point that there was nothing. And I was always looking, and God allowed my resources to be totally depleted. And then I remember my wife comes to me, she says to me, she says, we need about $50 worth of groceries. I probably didn't say anything to her, I just turned and walked away. I was frustrated, in all honesty. I was frustrated because she even told me. It was, oh, don't you realize I'm doing everything I can do? I can't produce money out of the sky. I mean, I was frustrated. And I remember walking out of that room, and I walked into the hall, and I poured my heart out to God. To Lord, I just took off 1,200 miles. We moved from Illinois. We believed you were leading us here. We came to this place here. We wanted to do what you wanted us to do. We followed you all the way here. And now you've allowed all my resources to be totally gone. And I've got a wife and three kids and no money. And I need $50 worth of groceries. She comes out and she says, we just got a phone call from the Bangor Baptist Church. I said, yes. They wanted to know where we're staying. Yes. They said, they're coming to see us. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. When I heard that, I thought, what have I done wrong? <laughs> Honestly, I thought, all right, I must have done something wrong. They're going to come and see me. And so they showed up. And what did they do? They said, is this where you're living? He said, yes, it is. And then they went to the car and brought in groceries after groceries and brought them in. And my wife said afterwards, she said, they gave us about $50 worth of groceries. And I realized then, 
That was one of the greatest lessons that God gave to us. To realize that our foundation was solid. Jesus was faithful. Yes, he allowed all that to happen. But he wanted to prove to us he could take care of us. And he did. Not only then, but I could give story after story after story how God has provided. And we've trusted. And as a result of that, found out the foundation is solid. It is sure. We can trust it. So one of the benefits of adversity, it reveals that our foundation in Jesus Christ can be trusted. He is an anchor that holds. You don't have to worry in the midst of the storm. He will hold you there. You may be wondering like this, but he'll hold us to that place. The other thing that that story reveals is that adversity reveals to us the faulty foundation. A faulty foundation. For example, some people think that they are all right. I give the illustration of one person, and you could think of a whole lot of people, I'm sure, without any question. But one person, he was a professor, and is a professor and a pronounced atheist. His brother is a preacher, and he and his brother had these debates on and off, on and off, all the time. And his brother would always tell him about the Lord, about God, about Christ, the need for salvation. And the professor, he'd deny it all. He'd argue from his philosophical position and say, no, that's not true, and so on and so forth. Well, his brother had cancer. And his brother was two weeks from dying. His brother sent a message to his preacher brother and said, come and see me. So his preacher brother came to see him. He called him into his room. And he gave his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. Two weeks before he went home to be with the Lord in glory. Two weeks. See, the adversity revealed to him the necessity of trusting Christ because his foundation wasn't any good. And you could compound that story multiple times. I could share many places of that happening. So it reveals the the faulty foundation. But here's another thing that adversity, one of the advantages of adversity, the benefits of adversity is, it advances God's agenda. And it advances God's agenda. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 11. It talks about how the eagle will, will stir the nest and, in a, and it bears up the eaglets on its wings. It stirs the nest. And you know, God sometimes has to stir the nest to get us to where he wants us to be. Have any of you ever found that God has had to make some things rather uncomfortable for you for you to move on? Yeah, he'd done that for me many a times. He'd made life uncomfortable. I was at a church in Mount Zion General Baptist Church. When they called me to come with the pastor of the church, I said, you don't want me to come and pastor this church because we don't agree. And they said, oh, no, well, go ahead and preach about that. So I preached about our security. And then they said, well, we can live with that. And I said, no, you can't. They said, yes, we can. I said, no, you can't. They said, yes, we can. We want you to come. So I did. Well, about two years into that ministry, one of them came around and they had a meeting and they said, you know, you're right. <laughs> we, we, we don't handle this very well, you know, and they, they became uncomfortable and it was time that God's way of moving me on because I don't always move real easy, but he moved me on. And the manner in which it was done was not the way I would have chosen. There was a little gossiper going around the back and he would go on and find this one here. He'd go over his way and this one here. And so at a meeting it comes, you know, and it all happens. But at the end, God wanted me to move and to do so 
he had to make some things uncomfortable. And I've seen that, and no doubt you've seen that. We've had people in our church at a time that their spirit just began to become unsettled where they were, and God moved them into another place. And that wasn't a bad thing, it was a good thing. But God makes it uncomfortable for us sometimes to move us to where he wants us to be. A biblical example of that, when God told Abraham in the book of Genesis in chapter 15, verse 13 through 17, he told Abraham, he said, you're going to be, uh, your descendants are going to be in another place for 400 years. They're going to be there for 400 years. And at the end of the 400 years, they're going to come back out and they're going to come into this land. Well, as you know the history that the children of Israel, they ended up in the land of Egypt. And they were, they were doing well. They were prospering. They were doing great. And then near the end of the time, it says in the book of Exodus, it said there was a new king of a different kind who didn't know the history of Joseph and those people. And what did that new king do? He feared them and he began to enslave them. He made their life miserable. And as a result of that miserable, the long story short, then they became very uncomfortable living in Egypt. And finally, they went out just exactly as God said they was going to go out 400 years later. What am I saying is that when the time came for them to move, God made it uncomfortable. Why did he have to make it uncomfortable? Because they were doing all right before the new king came. And if everything is going all right, doing just fine, and God says, I want you to leave, I could see him saying, hey, we like it here. Why do I want to leave? This is nice. We got everything. But he made it to be uncomfortable, and they moved on. So one of the uh, benefits of adversity is that God uses that uncomfortableness sometimes to move us in a direction that he would have us to be moved. And there's another aspect of this, the benefits of adversity is it advances God's agenda. It advances God's agenda. The, and the, this is taking a broad look at these things, that advancing God's agenda in the book of John, you can find many references that talk about this, but I'm just going to state in the book of John in chapter 16, Jesus is telling his disciples, bad times are coming. Bad times are coming. And he said, I'm telling you this now, so when they come, you will know I told you they was coming. It's no surprise to me. Therefore, when it happens, you know I'm still on the throne. I know what's going on. I'm telling you now, it's going to happen. Bad things are coming. And then he says, verse 21, John chapter 16, he said, talking about these times, it is as a woman who travails in pain until she gives birth to her baby. And then what? <laughs> Forgets the pain. You know what? When the rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ takes place, we're not going to be too concerned, are we? It advances his agenda for end times. Another thing it does, it advances his agenda to glory. And I've heard testimonies here of some folks have gone to glory. You know, you and I are locked into these bodies. And as much as sometimes you might like to change this body and get a better body, I know I've heard some ladies say they put in a size requirement. They want to have a certain size, and I don't know anything about sizes, but give me one like this and this, this, and this. I don't know about that stuff. But they, you know, we get a new body. And there are times, have you ever had a time you kind of wished that your body wasn't what it was? 
Okay, so we get a new body. And, you know, when death takes place in the life of a believer, because the only way we're going to escape this world is either by rapture or by death. And when we leave, there are these things that happen. When a brother or sister dies in Christ, these are the things that happen. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For me to die is gain. It's something better. And so what happens? Well, I hear that there are some believers here who have passed on. The first thing I can say that happens, there is relief. There is relief. They're not worried about Afghanistan now. They're not worried about paying the bills. They're not worried about these stresses and emotions. There is relief from all the stresses and strains and emotional things you and I are dealing with today. They're relief. Ha! That's gone. Second thing is, they're released. They're released from this old body. They're released from that body that I got like when I get up in the morning, my hip begins to tell me, said, you ain't no hip, hip, hooray anymore. I tell you, I, I, I have some aches and pains, and I can tell some folks who got white hair, you all know what I'm talking about. Now, when you're 13, you maybe you don't have them. But anyway, we get relief, and then we're released from this body. And then think, there's a reunion. It advances God's agenda. There's a reunion. Now, I can't really imagine what that reunion is like, but I can tell you that I've been at the side when people have passed. And I've been there when people said, hey, there's so-and-so. Or I've been there when a person who could not even lift his arms, he lay there in his bed, couldn't lift his arms for the day, two days, his wife is right there. And then just before he passed, he set up put his arms out like that. He went like that. He laid down and he was gone. He saw something. I personally believe that God has a welcoming committee for his people. And those people who are near and dear to you, whenever we pass from this, I believe he has them ready, waiting on that welcoming committee. And so it might be your Aunt Martha, it might be your brother, it might be your sister, it might be somebody else. But I believe they're right there. And one of the first ones you see, you see that loved one. What a welcoming sight. In that reunion that you have. And the older we get, the more people we've got going up there. And you have that. But then think, one day when that happens, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to actually see the one who created the heavens and the earth, who took upon himself the form of a human body, and he came to this old earth, and he lived, he suffered, he died, and he rose from the dead, and he stretched his arms out, and he says, I love you, and to be loved and embraced by him. What a glorious day. So it advanced to glory. But there is another story. One is advanced to glory, and other is advanced to another story. To those without Jesus Christ, Paul said in Philippians 3.18, he said he wept for those who are the enemies of the cross for their destruction. Their God was their belly. They had no shame. They lived solely for this world. And I say, why in the world was he weeping for those people who made life ugly for him? Why in the world would he weep for those who threw him in prison? Why would he weep for those who had beaten him and mistreated him? Why would he weep for those who had mistreated others? Why would he weep for them? He weeped for them because he saw something much bigger. You see, one minute after we die, our destiny is irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. Now just think about it. 
irrevocably fixed and eternally unchangeable. In that moment when a person dies without Jesus Christ, Psalm 73 says that in that moment they are utterly consumed with terror. Think of that. Utterly consumed with terror. With the awareness that they are in a place they have no hope. I said before, we have hope. I cannot imagine a life without hope. They will be more alive, more conscious than they've ever been. No sleep, but always aware there is no hope. Their fate is settled forever. Time without end. How long is forever? We don't think about that. But imagine a little bird flies from the moon to the Rocky Mountains, takes a speck of dust, goes back to the moon, flies all the way back to the Rocky Mountains, take another speck, and does that until the Rocky Mountains are totally depleted. Then time has not yet begun, and these folks are still going to be alive. There are people that I do not like, I'll be very honest. A whole lot I don't like. But I do not dislike anybody to the point that I want to see them die in their sins and go straight to hell for all of eternity. This moment is but for a moment. The scripture said, what would it profit a man if you gained the whole world? Or what would you give in exchange for your soul? Well, I tell you, the exchange rate for my soul should be pretty high. You know, so let's say you, you became the most powerful individual here upon the earth and you amass great wealth, and you have great power, and people fall down before you everywhere, and you live to be 100 years old, and then you die. But then you go off into hell, and you're there forever. I'd ask, what's it worth? I would ask, what would you sell your eyesight for? Tom, how much would you sell? I see you got glasses. Would you sell your eyes for about a million bucks? You, not a million bucks? Well, what about two million? I mean, she could like me. She wouldn't mind having the money, you know. No, uh, five million. How many would sell your eyes for five million dollars, your eyesight? Huh? Ten million. I don't see anybody taking the offer. If we wouldn't sell our eyesight for any amount of money, then how much would we give away that soul for? And whatever it is that keeps a person from coming to Jesus Christ is what they sold their soul for. Power is not worth it. So yes, it advances God's agenda, and it advances some to glory. It advances others to a different story. So there are these benefits that come. Luther said it this way. Find what he said there. Luther said, disasters clarify our values. They challenge our faith. They reveal who we really are. If we are rooted in the promises of Jesus, we can endure. If not, we will be swept away by our own human philosophies and narrow interpretations. May I say that again? Disasters clarify our values. They challenge our faith and they reveal who we really are. If we are rooted in the promises of Jesus, we can endure. If not, we will be swept away by our own human philosophies and narrow interpretations. I have my wreck. Oh, here it is. How many know what this is? How many have no idea what this is? I think no idea. Uh, how about this? Does that help? How, how many know what this is? Does anybody not know what it is? I mean, that's a valid question because 
50 years ago, we used to put these down there on the turntable and play them. And I kept this one because there was a song on it that spoke to my heart. And therefore, I didn't toss it, even though you see it's got a broken record here. And the name of the song was by, sung by uh, Jimmy Dean. And in that song, he had something that he shared that spoke to my heart. And I think it's something that we can think on. That sometimes I wonder when things go so wrong. Has God forsaken and left me alone? Then I remember through trials of distress, he's always with me. I'm most richly blessed. I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was given weakness that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for help that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was made weak that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I asked for, but everything I hoped for. And almost despite myself, I, among men, am most richly blessed. He's always with me. I'm most richly blessed. And that is so true. So some of the benefits, and you could take any one of those things and build on them. But let me just briefly review. Some benefits of adversity. He gets our attention. Causes us to make a proper assessment of where we really are. It affirms this foundation, whether it is sure or faulty. It advances his agenda by making us uncomfortable to move us on, moving forward to end time events. And it advances to glory for the saints of God get to go home. And to others, it's a different story. But if a person can hear that story today, today is the day to do something. And I just encourage you, in the midst of the sorrow that I perceive, that you just trust Jesus. Jesus said this in John 14 and verse 1, very familiar, he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. That phrase in John 14, 1 was given at a time when the disciples were uh, concerned at the least. Jesus had said, I'm going to leave. And they're like, what's going to happen? And Jesus said this. I paraphrase John 14, 1. He said, trust me. I know what I'm doing. And for the next few days... They see him tried. They see him crucified. They see he's placed in the tomb. And they're going, this doesn't make any sense. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And they said, 
aha, now I get it. But during the time that he said that he was going away, to the time that he rose from the dead, they didn't know. And we may be in a state of confusion and chaos and all kinds of issues, but Jesus says to you and to me, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know what we're made of. And I have shared that which you placed on my heart before I share with this assembly of people. I ask, Lord, that you would bless them, encourage them, give them hope in the hour of despair. Lord, hold their hand, bring them through. And might we rest on that fact that we can trust you even though we don't know what's going on. In Jesus' name, amen.